in an actual relationship with the God of the universe. And then following on from that, we're looking at the idea of what it means to have joy in service. And I'm going to make the outrageous sort of claim that if it's God's joy to serve, then it's our joy to serve. But I think in this context, and maybe in others in similar cities to ours, the, the way we understand life and happiness is set up against a statement like that. The idea that if, if, um, it's, go- if it's God's joy to serve, then it's my joy to serve, I think immediately uh, doesn't resonate with us. And I think it's for one reason. Let me try and illustrate this. Uh, I've, I've had this happen several times, that um, I've been walking down the street minding my own business, and uh, all of a sudden, a, not all of a sudden, it's not fast like that, but anyways... <laughs> however you tell stories, a van pulls up and a guy will lean out the window and it's usually like a panel van, you can't see into it, so tinted windows everywhere and he'll lean out and he'll say, he'll say something like, how would you like a half price sound system? Now, I don't know if there's something about me that makes me look like a sucker who would like, give, not only give that guy my credit card details but let him into my house, um, but for some reason this has happened several times and every time it does understandably, as probably you would too, I just respond by saying no thanks because as you look at these guys in a van, you're like, I, I get the feeling that maybe this isn't a legitimate business. Like I, if I ask for your ABN, I might be getting a blank stare. I could be wrong. Maybe they're like a mobile Aldi and they're just saving money on signage and whatnot. Or maybe they're just taking a poll to find out who wants sound systems around the place and they're just going to drive off afterwards. But... In my head, I already I, I immediately kind of back off from something like that because in my head there's a framework for understanding a legitimate business. And that involves branding, it involves me approaching them rather than them approaching me on the street. There are all kinds of things associated in our culture with a legitimate business and that is not one. And so as soon as you see that, you kind of immediately, your instinct is these guys aren't, aren't legit. Now we have the same thing culturally. We have an instinct about things as to whether or not we think they're trustworthy or not. And this is true of vans that kind of pull up on the side of road, on the roads, but also statements about life and truth and meaning and happiness. In, in Eastern cultures, for example, there is the, the kind of the cultural belief that tradition is more trustworthy than new things. And in Islamic culture, they might be disinclined to believe something simply because it's Western. Because they've understood that that is, is untrustworthy. Every culture has what you call a plausibility structure, a way of understanding life that gives you an instinct about whether or not something's true. And in our culture, one of the most deep-seated beliefs we have is that happiness will be found in myself. That as I come to peace with myself, as I help myself, as I understand myself, as I find self-esteem and self-worth, I will be happy. But this is only new. I don't know if you know this, but Google has a function called Ngram where you can put in a word or a phrase and you can see over time how frequently that has shown up in the books that they've mapped. So I'll show you a couple of these as I was looking through this. The first one is self-esteem. And so you kind of get over time when that phrase started to emerge in popular writing. So you have words like self-esteem, self-understanding, and self-worth. Now, you see that all of these things are actually historically reasonably new. There's been an explosion in this kind of self-help movement. And we are raised in the culture of self. And it is a deeply held belief that happiness will be found when I find myself. 
I need to look to me for answers. And that runs completely against the grain of the passage that we just read from Philippians. That actually Jesus is saying that if you want to find happiness, it's going to be in knowing God and who He is and being like Him, that is being about others rather than the self. And so as we get stuck into this, I'm going to pray that that's a work that He would do by the power of His Spirit, that we would understand His Word, that we might live His way and find joy in what He finds joy in, that is in serving. So let's pray. God, we praise you that you are so good, that you are true, that you are right, that you are from everlasting to everlasting, that you are a righteous judge and yet a merciful Father who sent Christ as a sacrifice for sinners like us. And we just pray that as we look at your word today in Philippians, that you would reveal who you are, that you might blow us away with your goodness and mercy and kindness that it might transform our lives and lead us to live lives of service, finding joy in what you find joy in, serving others. And Father, we pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Well, the letter that we're looking at, so this book, Philippians, is a letter to a church in a place called Philippi, an ancient city. And the guy writing it is Paul. And he's writing to a church that he probably hasn't visited for about a decade. And he's, the, the letter itself, out of all the letters that Paul writes, and he's written a number in the New Testament, this is the one where the word joy comes up the most. It's over 15 times in the book. It's joy, 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 joy. He keeps going on and on and on about it. And he's writing this to them because they're facing opposition. He's writing from prison himself, being in prison for sharing the gospel. And he's writing to encourage this young church. We read in the first chapter in 127, it says, I'm writing this so that you'll stand firm. He wants them to stand firm. He wants them to understand who Jesus is and how you find joy in him. And so that leads us to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, sentences 1 to 4, we read this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Paul starts here by saying, if there is any encouragement in Christ. And he's not saying that in terms of like, if there's any encouragement in Jesus, then, you know, serve and be about other people. But if not, then don't worry about it, it's fine. He's saying this by kind of a way of exaggeration. Like, if there's any encouragement, because there is. It's obvious that there is, right? If Jesus, who is God himself, came and died for you, there's encouragement in that truth. And he's saying, if that is the case, by way of understatement, he's saying, then serve. Be of the same mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. He's saying, if you get the gospel, the message of Jesus, it turns you outwards to consider others. But this is a massive call, isn't it? To say to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, not a thing. That that should never be a motivation for something. It's the kind of thing that you, you probably have mixed feelings about. In one sense, we'd all think, look, that would be a great world to live in. That would be a great church to be in. If everyone was of that kind of mindset, only thinking about others, looking to others' needs, thinking about their interests, think, considering others more significant than themselves. There's no one here who is like, I would not want to be in a place like that. Get me to the place where people just think about themselves and their own interests all the time. Right? Nobody's thinking that. Mostly because that's really the world that we live in anyway. 
So if everyone thinks that this would be a pretty good way to live, why doesn't that happen? Why don't we live this way? So I think it is that even though in general we know that it would be a great thing, when it comes to the actual moment of being selfless, we find it very hard to believe in that moment I'll be happier serving others rather than serving myself. It's really hard to believe in the moment. He's not a great source of wisdom, but Mike Tyson once said, uh, whatever, he said, talking about boxing, he, said, he says, everybody has a plan, and, you know, talking about entering the boxing ring, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. And the idea is that, of course, young boxers, amateur boxers come into the ring, and they're like, I'm going you know, to be a game changer, I'll do the rope-a-dope thing or whatever. They get whacked in the face, and then all hell breaks loose, Right? And I think it's the same with being selfless. I reckon every Christian thinks, yes, that would be so good. I want to have the mind of Christ. I want to look to others' needs instead of my own. And then when it comes to the actual moment, it falls apart. We have every intention of being selfless. But then the moment arrives and you could get everyone a drink, but that is going to take a long time. And so you just don't. Or you could stick around and clean up, but look, probably someone else is going to do it. And you're kind of in a rush. You could get up early to make everyone breakfast, but then sleep is a really great and precious thing, right? It's, in a thousand little ways, it's so much harder to believe that I would have more joy if I were to serve others rather than to serve myself. And so how do we escape this cycle? Well, look what it goes on to say. In Philippians 2, 5 to 8, Paul writes the answer. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, Do not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul writes, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which means change the way you think. In our culture, we are getting the message constantly that happiness will be found in the self. Go inward, go inward, go inward, go inward. Paul says, have this mindset, have a shift of mind. When you think about what is true and what is real, have the mind of Christ. The one who, though he was God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped hold of, but instead became, came in the likeness of a man, a servant, and humbled himself to death on a cross. This text here has some of the deepest, the most profound statements about who Jesus is in the New Testament. We consider the weight of what he's saying here. We believe that God is Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. That there is one God, that God is three persons, and each person is fully God. Not a third of God that makes up God altogether. And that is a mind-blowing reality. But even more than that, we believe that Jesus himself was God, fully God, and fully human. That though it was his right to stay unharmed by the, the, the way the world is, he stepped into our reality. Look at what it says in sentence 7. It said, he emptied himself. Some translations say he made himself nothing. The God of the universe who reigns supreme comes down to his creation that have rejected him and rebelled against him, his sinful creation. What does it mean that Jesus came to earth as a human? Well, let's narrow it down. It doesn't mean that he ceased to be God as if that would make sense somehow anyway. But he didn't switch from being God to being a man. The New Testament is clear that Jesus is God. John 1 says uh, that that Jesus, the eternal God, become flesh. Colossians, a book that we looked at just at the end of last year, 
It says that Jesus is in very nature God. Over and over again in the New Testament, Jesus is God. That's not up for grabs. So it doesn't mean that. What doesn't mean? Well, the most helpful thing is to stick with the passage. It means this. He says, it did not, Jesus did not count equality with God as something to be grasped hold of, as something to be held tightly. Though he didn't have to come down, though it was his right to continue re- re- reigning in heaven, he does. And by the will of the Father, he comes to the earth as a man, and genuinely as a man. I don't know if you've ever thought much on this, because this is, this is the claim of Christianity, and the most extraordinary one, and always has been and always will be. The claim that Jesus was fully human. I mean, have you wrapped your mind around that? Not just pretending. I don't know if you've seen the movie The Incredibles, but at the, at the end of it, it's a story about like a family of superheroes, and at the end of it, uh, the dad's calling out to his kid who's in a race, and his kid is called Dash, and his superpower is just going at the speed of light. Well, so, it's a bit inconsistent throughout the movie, but, you know, whatever. We won't pick at it now. But um, he, so he's got super speed, but he's running in a kid's race with all his peers in his class, and they're trying to conceal the fact, obviously, that he's a superhuman. And so his kid's running ahead of the pack, and they're like, slow down. And then they're like, no, that's too much. Now speed up. And so he's kind of going back and forth. But in the pack, he's trying to make it look like he's a regular kid, even though he's a super kid. And some people, I think, have that mindset when they think about Jesus on earth. Did he, like, he kind of pretended, he kind of put on a skin suit, but really he wasn't a human in every single way. He was just kind of in the womb, just thinking like, oh, how long till I get out of here? And once he got out of here, he was kind of like a boss baby or something who could talk and walk, but just pretended to go gaga and that sort of thing. No, he was human like us in every way. Dorothy Sayers says, he himself, talking about Jesus, he himself has gone through the whole human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. Jesus has experienced it all, and in the same way that we do. Born in the likeness of man. You might say, well, how does that explain the miracles and sometimes the fact that Jesus had supernatural knowledge? I mean, one of the testimonies in the Gospels was that Jesus was God and man, that he raised the dead, that he healed the sick, that he spoke to a woman at a well and knew her entire past history without any former knowledge. Well, Jesus says, truly I say to you, in John six nineteen, truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. In becoming human... He became fully reliant on his heavenly Father for everything. He depended on him for knowledge and to trust his will. And at times that meant that his Father gave him supernatural knowledge and at other times it meant that he relied on the same human faculties that we do to understand things. He grew up as a child who had to learn things. He was in every way human. And it had to be this way. Hebrews 2.17 says that that he had to be in every way like us. Look what it says. It says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus had to be human in every way in order to be a sacrifice for human sin. There's an old phrase that goes around that it says, Whatever was not assumed has not been redeemed. Whatever was not assumed has not been redeemed. If, God, if Jesus was not fully human, then we are not fully forgiven. If Jesus was not fully human, he did not fully die for our sin. He was a man. 
and is. But this is not where it ends. Look where Paul finishes it up. In Philippians 2, 9 to 11, he says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He says, because of this, that is, because of Jesus' obedience to the point of death on a cross, God has exalted him to the highest place. That though he stooped to earth and died for sin, that wasn't his permanent position. He was raised to new life. The Father and the Spirit raised him to life, and he is seated on the throne, and he will one day judge the nations. This is an incredible thing. C.S. Lewis summarizes this whole massive truth like this. It says, In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down further still, if embryologists are right, to recapitulate in the womb ancient and pre-human phases of life down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Or one may think of a diver first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through the green and warm water to the black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, then up again back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting till suddenly he breaks the surface again, holding in his hand the dripping, precious thing he went down to recover. That is the message of Jesus, reigning over heaven and earth, stooped down to earth as a man to pick up sinners like you and me, to be our atonement and to bring new life, the joy of indestructible life to all who believe in Christ. That is your king if you're a follower of Jesus. That is the God who is at the center of the universe. It is his joy to serve. How then could we be above God? If it is God's joy to serve, then it's our joy to serve. He made himself nothing. And Paul says, have the mind of Christ among you. Think like Jesus. Consider the gospel story and what he did, and then think about your decisions in life. If it is the joy of God to serve, then it's our joy to serve. But I think even with this, There are three things that kill joy in service. If we were to follow Christ truly and to be about others and to bit by bit and increment by increment increasingly be of the same mind, that is to to consider others' interests, to consider others more significant than ourselves, there are three things that I think will get in the way. And the first one is this. It's serving just to please people. One of the, the deepest motivators for human behavior is the approval of others. Is of others verbally saying it, or even just the thought that they might be approving of what I'm doing can be a powerful motivator for how we act. The problem is, it's not a lasting and joyful one. And it may be the case that when you hear the idea that, you know, if it's God's joy to serve, then it's our joy to serve. When you think about the idea of doing more, of serving more, you're, you're exhausted at the thought. And it may be because you're overstretched already, and that may be because you can't say no to people because you want them to approve of you. And if that's the case, 
it will kill a life of service and joy in service. Because the consciousness will always be that I'm worried about what people are saying. So at times when I really need to say no, I can't. And at other times when you do something expecting someone to praise you for it and they don't, you get bitter and, and nasty about it. But the answer is to look to Jesus. Paul says, have the mind of Christ. Don't be motivated by what people are or aren't going to think about you. Think about Christ. I mean, it's only his opinion that matters, and he was the one who saved you. He loves you. You're in an eternal relationship with him. So don't worry about what people are saying to you. That will kill a life of joy in service. That's the first one, serving to please people. The second killer will be self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is when I ignore Christ. I don't have the mind of Christ and think about Jesus. Instead, I think, I'm right with God because I do good things. And while none of us would explicitly often say that, that can be a motivator for us serving. And if that's the case, you'll serve others, but with bitterness and resentment in your heart. There will always be a sense that other people aren't carrying the same load that you are. Other people are kind of getting away with it. Why do I have to be the one who always serves? And so on and so on. The answer is to consider Christ. He is your righteousness. The motivation to continue to serve is not whether other people are or aren't serving or whether or not you'll be recognized for it, but to know that Jesus is the one who found joy in serving, and so we are called to do that too. But the third one is this. I didn't know quite how to title this one, but let's call it the myth of me time. I've, growing up, so I'm, I'm definitely an introverted personality. So that, growing up, that meant that I, I felt like I needed a lot of time by myself. So I used to do a thing called Beach Mission where, where you go away with people and kind of, you go to a caravan park and reach people with the gospel. But you, it's just for a week, it's just people, people, people. And my reward at the end of that was to see no one for a week. I will go to movies by myself, which for other people is a sign that life is really taking a dive. But for me, it was like, it was a rare treat. And I'd be a little bit deader if I saw someone I knew on the way. But, um, but I, I, at the time, I really felt like I needed a lot of time by myself to kind of recover. Now, over time, that disappears. Now that we've got kids, that's bye-bye. That's good. It's gone. It's, it's out of here completely. But it has kind of emerged to me that I didn't need quite as much me time as I thought I did. And we do, in, this, in, a, in a self-help culture, there is a, a belief that we need large swathes of time just to cope with life. And there is a truth to that. And then there are times where we can really overdo it. Like I was saying with the first one, you might be overstretched and overcommitted because of this belief that I need to please people and need to pull back on that. But there is one that goes kind of the other direction, which is like I need a wide kind of berth of free time around me. And once I've got past that, if there's a little bit in the margins, then I'll serve. I don't think that's the mind of Christ. Christ didn't say he was sitting in heaven completely untouched by the eels of earth and he's like, I, look, I could go down there, but like, I kind of want to get through the next season of Stranger Things. And like, it's, you know, once I'm sort of through that and I've binge watched it, then I, like, if I've got a bit of time left over, I'll do it. His mind was to, to love and to serve people, not only who didn't serve him back, but who hated him. The very people who nailed him to the cross. That's to have the mind of Christ. If it's God's joy to serve, then it's our joy to serve. So I wonder if your resolution around joy and happiness this year might be to become more of a servant in every sphere of life. In your workplace, what are you known for? Are you known as someone who dodges work 
and keeps their, their head low, keeps their head down to make sure they don't have to take on any extra duties? Or are you known as a servant? If you're a leader at work, do you try and raise up people beneath you and to celebrate their successes more than your own and to serve them and to see them flourish because you want to be about others? Or do you tend to use their successes for your own credit? If so, you're not being a servant in the workspace. And God has called you to serve. If it's his joy to serve, then it's ours too. And that means in every area of life. Maybe it's in church life. Do you come to, to Sunday gatherings or to when your missional community meets or when you see other people from this church community, do you come with a mindset of looking to the interests of others before your own? Would it be worth putting this passage to the test to say, if I did this more and more in, in kind of increasing measure, would I see more joy in my life? The kind of joy that Jesus knows. When it comes to your neighborhood where you live, Is that just somewhere you go to retreat from the world and get some sleep before you head back for another busy day? Would it be a change in mindset to go to your neighborhood and maybe just walk up and down your street and pray, God, would you reveal to me if there are needs that I can meet in this street, people that I can serve, connections that I can make, that I might share Jesus with them, that I might model that with them as I serve them, but that I might be able to share the message of Christ with them as well. Whatever it is for you, the truth of this passage is if, if it's God's joy to serve, it's ours too. And so I wonder if you would make a resolution this year that if I'll be more of a servant this year, be more servant-hearted this year, would I see more Christ-like joy this year than last? Why not put it to the test? Look at what it says as we finish up. Have, the mind, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, By taking the form of a servant, being in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's pray that we would be Christ-like. Father, we are just awed by the mystery of the gospel, that though we hated you, that in sin we rejected you, that you sent Christ to die on our behalf, He was not a half man. He was fully human and yet fully God. And in that way, the perfect sacrifice. That as he died, he didn't die for his sin but for ours. That we might be made new in Christ. And we pray that you would grant us this mind. That in every area, in every relationship, we might be growing in servant-heartedness. That we might not look to ourselves and our own interests, but to the interests of others also. You might clear out from our hearts false motivations around people-pleasing or self-righteousness and give us a new heart by the power of your Spirit to serve and to love people around us and to know the joy that you know in being selfless in service. And Father, we pray this for the glory of your holy name. Amen.